The following is the second of our two-part keynote with Deborah Mayo. It follows from the interview that we had previously, and its goal is to cover many of the key ideas described in her newly published book, Statistical Inference, a Severe Testing. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm going to start with the question of what is the philosophy of science and the philosophy of statistics? At one level, statisticians and philosophers of science ask many of the same questions. What should we observe and what can we infer from the data? What's a good test? When do we have confirmation? Should simplicity matter in inference? And how do we get to more accurate inferences based on shaky data? These very general questions are entwined with long-standing debates in philosophy of science, so it's not surprising that the field of statistics so often crosses over into philosophical territory. In fact, as Oscar Kempthorne says, statistics is a kind of applied philosophy. So in one direction, statistics is used by philosophers to model scientific inference, to get an idea of the actual or rational ways to arrive at evidence and inference. Second, to resolve philosophical problems about observation and induction. And third, to do what we call a meta-methodological critique to criticize certain methodological rules. Should we prefer novel data, for example? What about in the other direction? Well, a central job of philosophers is to help scrutinize and illuminate the conceptual problems of scientists, especially in areas like statistics. And despite the technical sophistication that we see today, the truth is that basic concepts of statistical testing and probabilistic inference are more unsettled than ever. So in the philosophers trying to tackle those problems in statistics, she is also at the same time making progress on her own problems in philosophy of induction. So I call it the two-way street. By and large, science goes about its work without philosophy of science and philosophy of statistics, but there are circumstances where Philosophical considerations are especially called for, such as when practitioners need to articulate general principles and goals, when they're faced with a need for a principal justification for brand new or altered method. Third, when the field is wrestling with fundamental challenges to what had long been taken to be principles about its nature and justification. I say that statistics is currently in one of those circumstances due to the crisis of replication and to new data science and the merging of machine learning, artificial intelligence with statistics. What happens is that the epistemological standpoints of leaders, whether they be philosophers or statisticians, are too readily taken as canon. We have popular memes that are bandied about, such as all models are false, everything is equally subjective and objective, p-values exaggerate the evidence, most published research findings are false. We really need to get underneath and question where these come from and not just repeat them. 
So the central problem in the statistics wars, as I call them, has to do with the very role of probability in inference. Should probability be used to ensure good performance that we won't erroneously interpret data too often in the long run? Or is it used to quantify degrees of belief or support, usually comparative degrees or support? Okay. People might say, you know, we really have solved these problems. Nowadays, we have reconciliations and unifications, and people are very eclectic. They just want to use what works. So it seems we're at the end of foundations. But the truth is that longstanding battles still simmer below the surface in today's work, especially when it comes to crisis of science and um, underdetermination and lack of replication. Just agreeing on numbers isn't enough. We get a kind of statistical schizophrenia. Not to mention that these unifications have problems and people aren't in agreement about how to interpret them. And so I say that we should revisit the debates, but we should do so in relation to today's problems, the problems underlying things like the replication um, crisis. So what is behind the constant drumbeat that science is in crisis? By and large, the issue is that with high power computer methods, it becomes very easy to find impressive looking effects, even though they're spurious and they don't replicate when independent groups try to. So we set sail with a very simple tool. If little or nothing has been done to rule out flaws in inferring a claim, it has not passed a severe test. A claim can pass severely only if it has been subjected to and passes a test that would have, with high probability, found it flawed or specifiably false, if indeed it is. And this probability is the severity with which it has passed the tests, and it's a measure of evidential warrant. Of course, this calls for an appropriate measure of passing or accordance, discordance between data and hypothesis and models. Um, so to see the severity requirement in its two forms, the weakest says if the data agree with the claim, but the method was practically incapable of finding flaws, even if they're there, then it's poor evidence. It's no test. So this is a kind of negative point. That is, we're blocking an inference. A more positive claim is when we can say that we have satisfied severity, that the test was highly capable of finding flaws, and yet none or few were found. And in that case, the passing result is an indication of or evidence for the claim. So this is what I mean by saying statistical inference may be viewed as severe testing. It doesn't mean I always consider formal testing to arise. It's actually a tool that can be used for any methods, whether it's estimation or prediction. Moreover, you needn't accept this philosophy. I see it as an excavation tool that you can use 
to get beyond today's statistical wars and also appraise some of the reforms that are coming down the pike. Many of these reforms are welcome, such as pre-registration, avoidance of cookbook statistics, and calls for more replication research. Others, though, are quite radical, and you might be surprised, even violate our most minimal principle of evidence. So in order to combat paradoxical and self-defeating reforms and unthinking bandwagon effects, can require taking on very strong ideological leaders. So it isn't quite enough to have the arguments. I think you have to be prepared to be able to respond and to challenge people who put forward views. Now, the most often used tools understandably are the most criticized, and that's statistical significance test. And this is Ioannidis in his famous 2005 paper saying that the cause of irreplication is the tendency to reach conclusive research findings on the basis of a single small p-value. Okay. That would be kind of outrageous. Do researchers really do this? He says they do. Of course, from the beginning, R.A. Fisher, who is the founder of TESS, made it clear that we're not interested in an isolated small p-value. We need a reliable method of procedure. A phenomena is experimentally demonstrated only when we know how to conduct an experiment that rarely fails to give us a statistically significant result. So this is uh, forgotten or just not applied in um, these abusive cases. The simple significance test will be testing for conformity of data with a claim. It's often, often put in terms of a null hypothesis H naught. And we have a function of the data called a test statistic. And the larger that value, the more inconsistent the data are with the hypothesis of interest. And the p-value corresponding to any observed difference is the probability of getting an even more extreme value than you did under the assumption that H naught or background alone or chance is operating. The reasoning is straightforward. If even larger differences than observed occur fairly, fairly frequently under H naught, i.e. the p-value is not small, there's scarcely evidence of incompatibility with, with H naught, because this is the sort of thing you would frequently expect, even if you were in a world where H naught is true. On the other hand, a small p-value does indicate some underlying discrepancy from H naught, because very probably you would have seen a less impressive difference than you got were the world in accordance with H naught. But even then, it's not evidence of a genuine statistical effect, let alone a scientific conclusion, which I write here as H star, even though Ioannidis says people go from a single small p-value all the way to this scientific claim. In fact, it's a well-known fallacy to go from statistical to substantive claims. Now, Neyman-Pearson tests, it's good to know, actually, 
built upon Fisherian tests, introduced the alternative hypothesis H1, such that H0 and H1 together would exhaust the whole space. So this is an example where the null might say um, no positive effect and the alternative could be some positive effect. So you see this move from a statistical to a substantive conclusion at least is blocked because when you reject that null hypothesis, you're really just making an inference about that parameter, the statistical parameter in the model. And of course, having the second hypothesis is very important. It introduces not just the type one, but the type two error that's failing to reject the null hypothesis when you should, and the corresponding notion of power. So I would put Fisher and Naaman Pearson both under tools for appraising and bounding the probabilities of seriously misleading interpretations of data. This is Alan Birnbaum. So I put them both under what I call error statistics, and that includes confidence intervals, also resampling, randomization. Both Naaman Pearson and Fisher emphasized how easy it is to lie with biasing selection effects. Sufficient finagling, cherry picking, multiple testing, et cetera, may practically guarantee a preferred claim gets some support, even if it's unwarranted by evidence. Doing this violates severity. You say you've got an effect that would be very difficult to achieve under chance alone, when in fact, it would be very easy to achieve under chance alone. However, I believe this requires a third role for probability beyond the two that we typically hear about. These two usually encompass, first of all, what I call probabilism, that probability arises to assign probability, confirmation support in a hypothesis given data. Usually it's a comparative measure. The second is the performance, the probability arises to ensure long-run reliability of methods like coverage probabilities and confidence interval. But actually, neither of these is adequate to capture this error-probing capacity. However, good long-run performance is a necessary requirement, it's just not a sufficient requirement for severity. So, we start with those tools, and then we try to build on them and see when they do give us what we want. To con contrast the three, we can consider a claim C is not warranted for the probabilist unless C is true or probable or gets a probability boost made firmer. For the performance artist, it's not warranted unless it stems from a method with low long-run error. And for the severe tester, and to have another P, we can call it probativism. C is not warranted unless something, ideally a fair amount, has been done to probe the ways we could be wrong about claim C. I'll give you a very informal example of a severe test having to do with my weight. I want to know if I've gained weight between the time I left town going to Germany and my return. And I use a series of well-calibrated scales both before leaving and when I return. If they all show me as at least four pounds over and none of them show any difference in an object of known weight, such as my first book, Error and the Growth of Experimental Knowledge, I can infer I've gained at least four pounds. 
Notice how the properties of the scales are really similar to the properties of statistical tests. It's about how good they perform. Nevertheless, nobody would say the justification for my inference about my weight is merely the long run, and I can't say I have evidence about my weight in particular. Instead, what we do is infer something about the source, me, of the readings from the high capability to reveal if any of the scales are wrong. Now, I could always insist all the scales are wrong. They work fine when weighing objects of known weight, right? It's like a conspiracy that the scales read my mind and they know if I'm weighing something where I don't know the weight. Um, but this would prevent correctly finding out about weight. I'm saying that the severe tester is assumed to be in a context of wanting to find things out. I agree that we're not normally or even typically in that situation. It's only when we really want to find things out where perhaps our lives depend on it that we really want to engage in a conjecture and falsification activity and find out if we're wrong. And that is why I would go ahead and infer I've gained at least four pounds. Otherwise, I could always withdraw uh, an assent to any inference. On the other side, so that was an example of a severe test. On the other side, we have some good examples of in severe tests, the rogues gallery, as I call them. And we discussed these uh, during our recorded session last time. So I'll skip. Now, the battles about the roles of probability really do trace to philosophies of inference. For example, some of the well-known names, Popper and Carnap. It's as if Popper is to Carnap as frequentists, my error statistician, are to Bayes. When philosophers start out trying to build a logic of confirmation, they are interested in this C function that would hold between a hypothesis and evidence. In building this C function, it's completely irrelevant if the data E was known first and then the hypothesis H proposed to explain it or the other way around, whether there was a genuine prediction. And that thinking compares and um, is very close to the principle that we have in statistics called the likelihood principle. And this is a principle about the content of information in data. And what it's saying is that all the information is in the likelihood ratios. So what is a, a likelihood? The likelihood of H naught, given the data, x naught, it's the probability of x naught under the assumption or given that h naught. So we typically look at these likelihood ratios. Notice in doing so, the data are fixed. The hypothesis vary. And just like the confirmation theorist, we don't have to worry about which came first, if it was a prediction 
or something that came after. So it's, it's a fascinating connection. Ian Hacking was a philosopher of science who's one of the early ones to propose this account. He called it the law of likelihood. And it is that data X support hypothesis H naught less well than H1 if the likelihood of H naught is less than H1. Notice that means if the probability of X under H naught is less than the probability of X under H1. He rejects this soon after. And one of the big reasons is that any hypothesis that perfectly fits the data is going to be maximally likely, even if it was the result of multiple testing and data dredging. As George Bernard says, there always is such a rival hypothesis, namely things just had to turn out the way they did. Now, Neyman and Pearson said, the ratio of likelihoods is a good place to start, but we need to go one level removed and ask what's the probability that H naught is less well supported than H1 under the assumption of H naught. And in fact, what they notice is that the probability of finding some alternative that's better supported, even though H naught is true, is high. We really can't understand the difference between small and large values of the likelihood ratio, say Neyman and Pearson, unless we look at that second order probability. That's what an error probability does. It's actually a probability attached to the method. Okay. But on the likelihood principle, if, if it's taken strictly, error probabilities are irrelevant. And Dennis Lindley, a well-known subjective Bayesian, puts it very clearly. Sampling distributions, significance, levels, power, all of those things depend on something that is irrelevant in Bayesian inference, namely the sample space, by which he means once the data are in hand or the Bayesian, you don't consider other outcomes that could have occurred, but didn't. And yet we statisticians always look at that. Jim Berger and Walport wrote a book called Likelihood Principle, and they're really reflecting this confirmation type philosophy saying it's very strange that a frequentist couldn't analyze data if they didn't know, for example, the plan for when they would stop sampling and gathering more and more data. Shouldn't data be able to speak for itself? In fact, they don't. Um, and I discuss early on in my book, it's very easy to see how things like stopping rules, the plan for when to stop collecting data, falls out if you accept the likelihood principle. It's also at odds with a central way to advance replication. Simmons, Nelson, and Simonson suggest that to get around irreplication, we accept what they call a 21-word solution. And here you'll report all of the information, how you determined your sample size and uh, how many hypotheses you looked at and so on. Because they find that Flexibility with data dredging and stopping rules is a major source of failed 
replication, the forking paths, as Gelman and Logan put it. Now, I'm going to move on to a current controversy for a little bit. This stems from the fact that the American Statistical Association was sufficiently concerned about lack of replication to put together a proposal or statement that uh, would explain how to avoid misinterpreting p-values. They worry that the whole validity of science is going to be put into doubt if they don't. Um, and I was one of the um, observers, they called me a philosophical observer, <laughs> uh, to that proceeding. And there was a statement of six principles, and one of them, principle four, reflects this very concern that's in that 21-word solution. As they explain, data dredging and so on renders reported p-values uninterpretable, and they say transparency requires you to report how many hypotheses you tested, your shopping rule, et cetera, and that was a good thing. So they put forward these six principles, and they're very clear that there's nothing new in this ASA statement. This is a statement clarifying well-known and well-agreed-upon principles for interpreting TAP. So something happened, though, a few years later, in March of 2019, the same people who had written the earlier statement put forward another statement, or perhaps it's being called a report, in an editorial, which said, you know, that 2016 statement stopped just short of recommending that we abandon the notion of statistical significance altogether. They say, don't say significance, don't use p-value threshold. We take that step here. It was very unclear if this was a continuation of the 2016 statement or just something that these particular editors believe. In any event, this is uh, something that is undergoing debate right now. There is a new task force for statistical significance that will decide about this. So this is pretty radical that they start telling us not to use the words, but even more importantly, it is um, not to use any threshold at all. Now, we certainly agree that we should move away from unthinking uses of thresholds where you always use, let's say, 0.05, uh, without linking that to empirical and theoretical meanings. That's true not just for significance levels, but also for confidence levels and any other statistical quantity. We also agree that the actual p-value should be reported instead of just saying significant, non-significant, or something like that. But this 2019 editorial goes much further. In its view, pre-specified p-value thresholds should not be used at all in interpreting results. So it's not just a word ban, it's a gatekeeper ban. For example, the no threshold view would preclude the FDA's long-established 
drug review procedures, and the authors themselves recognize this because in phase three trials, they do look at a pre-specified p-value. Now, to be fair, it might be argued that by removing p-value thresholds, researchers will finally lose the incentive to data dredge to exploit researcher flexibility with stopping rules, et cetera. The trouble is that even without the word significance, the eager researcher still can't take a large, i.e. non-significant p-value to indicate a genuine effect. In other words, if they find themselves with a non-small p-value, they're still going to want to show they have evidence of an effect and they're not going to be able to do it using this large p-value because to do so would be to say something nonsensical. It would be to say, even though more extreme results than ours would frequently occur by random variability alone, I claim my data are good evidence that they're not due to chance variability. And so they would still have to get that p-value down, okay? And they could use a number of tricks, the data dredging, spinning the results, selecting, uh, outcome changing, you thought you were looking for mortality, but now you decide to look for rates of diabetes or something. Um, but the problem is, if we are in this world without pre-designated thresholds, it would be hard to hold the data dredger accountable for reporting what's called the nominal p-value, the result of data dredging and multiple testing, okay? Why? Because the 2019 editorial says whether a p-value passes any arbitrary threshold should not be considered at all in interpreting data. The no threshold view also blocks common uses of confidence intervals and Bayes factor standards when they're used indirectly as tests. The bottom line is that if you can't say about any results ahead of time that they won't be allowed to count in favor of a claim, you don't have a test of it. No test, no falsification. What is the point of insisting on replications of effects if at no stage can you say the effect has failed to replicate. It looks like you do need a test after all. I think there's a common fallacy and that is to suppose because we have a continuum that we cannot distinguish points at the extremes but in fact we can for instance distinguish results readily produced by chance variability from cases where there's real evidence of incompatibility with the chance variability hypothesis. And certainly we see this as extremely important in distinguishing effective from ineffective treatment regarding COVID. Yet the 2019 intro rejects any number of categories they say the problem isn't just having two labels. We shouldn't trichotomize them or put them into any number of groups. I think that's just unworkable. And underlying all of these uh, disagreements 
is that long-standing philosophical controversy about the role of probability that I have been mentioning. Should they be used to control the frequency of erroneous interpretations or give comparisons of degrees of belief? And um, even though people might uh, say these are unpalatable wars, we really don't want to hear about them, uh, they do simmer below the surface, certainly here when we're told that in order for a p-value to be relevant, you'd have to misinterpret it as a posterior probability or something like that. What you really need to say is, no, we're using it to determine how well tested a claim is. I, for one, would say there are contexts for both assessing believability and plausibility as opposed to assessing how well tested a claim is. The thing is, there's an important difference. Claims can be probable or even known to be true, and yet we want to say that it's poorly tested by the data, and we don't want to lose that distinction. Regardless of your philosophy of statistics, it won't do to simply declare by fiat that science should reject the falsificationist view for the probabilist view. I just want to say that um, there are weaknesses in significance tests. There are misinterpretations and fallacies. These should drive us to reformulate the test. I'll just give you a short idea about how the reformulation that I recommend goes. I say we should consider a particular discrepancy parameter, gamma, from that reference test hypothesis or null hypothesis H naught, and to determine how severely the claim has passed, we have to consider the test as a whole and the data. Instead of a binary cutoff that everybody dislikes, significant or not, um, the particular outcome is used to infer the discrepancies or population effect sizes that are or are not warranted at different levels of severity. So for example, we talk about fallacies of rejection. Here's a typical one-sided test that mu is less than zero or greater than zero. And it's not too informative to just infer mu is greater than zero, I admit. But there's nothing to stop you from going further to set a particular effect size. If you very probably would have observed a more impressive p-value, i.e. smaller, if the true mean was, call it, mu1, gamma un units away from mu0, then the data are poor evidence that mu exceeds that. This is the same reasoning that we saw in dealing with the data treasure. So you can avoid fallaciously supposing you have evidence of a larger discrepancy than you really do, even if you might be fine in saying there's some difference. And this relates to the notion of a test power. We can imagine M being the sample mean, and if it just reaches statistical significance at level P, we can compute power, that is the probability of rejecting a null hypothesis when some alternative is true. Um, so 
it's interesting to note that power actually goes in the opposite direction of severity with respect to assertions of the form mu is greater than some value, okay? The higher the probability you should have gotten a larger observed value, the act actually the less indicative. Sometimes, in fact, often people get this wrong. Let me just refer to a very informal example because everyone knows and complains that with a large enough sample size, you can just about always reach a small p-value so long as there's any discrepancy at all from the null. But as a matter of fact, a significant difference at level, call it alpha, indicates less of a discrepancy from the null if it results from a larger rather than a smaller sample size. Think of a toaster. What's more indicative of a large effect if we're measuring a fire. A fire alarm that goes off with burnt toast is so sensitive. Or one that doesn't go off unless the house is fully ablaze. The larger sample size is like having the one that goes off with toast. It is what? The less sensitive alarm that indicates you should be worried. Uh, we do an analogous thing in my reinterpretation of tests to avoid fallacies of non-significant results. It's a mistake to say that they're uninformative. And of course, it's a well-known fallacy to say a non-significant result is evidence of no discrepancy, whether it's one-sided or two. But we can find upper bounds and say, look, if the probability was high that I would have gotten a smaller p-value under the assumption that the discrepancy is such and such big, and yet I didn't, I got a negative result, then at least I can rule out the discrepancy being that large. Um, so this is, of course, very much like a confidence interval. And you could also find your discrepancy sizes using confidence intervals, and that's good. But confidence intervals should not be just used at one level, as they typically are, 0.95. We should look at a series of benchmarks. So I just wanted to uh, mention that I'm not saying we should accept the tests as they are. I have worked on reformulating them to avoid fallacies a long time ago. And one last point is that this idea of severity, a severity assessment, is really very general. It isn't limited to formal statistics. It's also to probe all of the links from the raw data to the statistical claim to a scientific theory and beyond that. Uh, I, in fact, I think that replication research focuses too much on whether they manage to get a low p-value and tend to ignore the larger question about whether they're even measuring the phenomenon of intro. Okay, well, I'm going to stop there. I think I'll give some overview of what the current issues are and how I would approach them.
Hey guys, it's Glenn. Thanks so much for listening to this most recent episode of the Philosophy of Data Science. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider leaving a like, a comment, and hitting that subscribe and bell button, or small channel and every bit helps. If you have a lab, a department, some students or some colleagues who you think would enjoy this episode, please consider sending along. Again, every bit helps, and we really appreciate your word of mouth. Our next episode on the Philosophy of Data Science will be coming out 1 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesday of next week, so we look forward to seeing you then. But if you can't wait to get more data science, machine learning, and statistical content, feel free to look around the rest of the channel. We have a large number of playlists, including things like machine learning for healthcare, uh, ethics and AI, and things like that. So give a look around. There's plenty more content for you to enjoy. You can also check out our website to not only see past episodes, but what's coming up and see who our sponsors are. Thank you to our sponsors for your support. Now, while the views discussed on the show typically range between extraordinary and mind-blowing, the stated views don't necessarily represent those of the host, our sponsors, my employer, your employer, the speaker's employer, or anyone else not saying those words. And as always, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. See you next week.